You're listening to DraftKings Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. So I dropped my kid off at kindergarten, and the first thing I did was watch the Tim Donaghy doc. Boys, I have watched the doc. I have notes here, and boy, am I glad we talked to Sean Patrick Griffin last week, because if you haven't listened to that episode, Uh it is like a crash course in this whole saga. And in fact, the whole time I'm waiting for new information, oh, there's a new wrinkle in this story, Sean Patrick Griffin in his book, Gaming the Game... Basically, he covered it all. They just dramatized it. They just put it on film in this documentary. That's what I'm saying, Tom. After we listened to Sean last week, I feel like you're just watching the documentary to essentially make sure their facts are straight. You're giving them an audit. Was it all the things that he warned us it would be? You know, they did a fairly good job, I would say, of corroborating or trying to corroborate Tim Donahue's claims. Principally, the big one is that he didn't fix games. And Baba Jimmy Batista, who Tim Donahue has long called, as we talked about in our interview, this mafioso, this guy who's driving a fancy car. And meanwhile, his actual car is a minivan. Tim Donahue is claiming that Baba in the first meeting threatened Tim Donnie and his family and Baba's in the interview on this documentary is just like emphatic. Like, what are you nuts? Like we all know you don't threaten. You get a lot more out of these conspirators or a lot of these people you want to work with, with honey rather than vinegar. And so there's a lot of that. I think the most interesting stuff that you'll see in this documentary is Phil Scala and Baba talking about David Stern. And the way the NBA, in their mind, contributed to this getting swept under the rug, that they just pinned it on Tim Donahue and move along. And that is at the end. It kind of like ramps up at the very end. I'll just put it like this, fellas. We're going to be hearing a lot about Scott Foster on this podcast next time we talk to Sean Patrick Griffin. Woo-wee! That's a tease. Hit the music. My Assignment. Uncover why the association inspires more conspiracy theories in volume and salience than any other U.S. sport. You've heard of the Illuminati. The truth is out there, but so are lies. Your eyes can deceive you. Don't trust them. The NBA has always been controlled by about eight people. Denial is the most predictable of all human responses. If you're only using 10% of your brain, you don't even know that you're using 10% of your brain. The NBA Illuminati. If coincidences are just coincidences, why do they feel so contrived? The Illuminati. But you start to follow the money, 
and you don't know where the f*** it's going to take you. It is unspoken. They have influence among other players. The NBA I don't have time for your convenient ignorance. Maybe I'm a conspiracist now as well. That's but... all it took. Oh, we got books, we got schools. You saw a video on YouTube. <laughs> Why am I, sir? You've never used them before. We are the basketball of This is Basketball Illuminati. I'm Tom Haverstrow, and as always, I am joined by the five-star Illumin Army Generals, Amin Al-Hassan, and our producer, Anthony Mays. Fellas, we got a great show today. A lot of eyes opening, a lot of large unicorns. Why they keep showing up, why they keep falling apart and disappearing on us. We talked to the injury guru on the NBA. His name is Jeff Stotts, friend of the program. Yes. Has the most sophisticated comprehensive database on injuries. We're going to learn a lot about the Chet Holmgren injury from last week. He's going to introduce us to our friend Liz Frank, apparently. Liz has been up to no good now, messing around with Chet. Elizabeth, we're going to have to have a chat about Chet. Yeah, you'll understand what Amin is talking about here in a little bit, but first. You are listening to The Agenda with Tom Haverstrow and Amin El Hassan. RJ Barrett. Oh, guys, the Knicks said enough, and they boop put down the money, signed him up, and told Danny Ainge, your move, whiz kid. I love this. I love this palace intrigue. I love the escalation of the negotiation, taking a chip that was on the table and, in essence, eviscerating it from the table. There's a snowball's chance in hell of R.J. Barrett being part of a Donovan Mitchell deal. So if Danny Ainge is going to have to get a deal done with the Knicks, it's not going to include R.J. Barrett because of the signing and extension. Do we need to explain why, guys? Well, it's not that it's definitely not going to include R.J. Barrett. It just makes it a lot more complicated thanks to a lovely little provision that has earned the cute moniker Poison Pill. Yes. But the irony of this is that usually the Poison Pill makes it tougher for the team acquiring the player. But in this case, it's really more of a self-inflicted Poison Pill on the Knicks because now they can't move him to the Jazz without adding more salary. couple of things when it comes to Poison Pill. Okay, so first of all, when you hear Poison Pill, nine times out of ten people don't know what they're talking about because they'll refer it to those second-round pick guys end up signing big deals. They get matched by their teams. Tyler Johnson. The restricted free agent Poison Pill. Like Tyler Johnson, Jeremy Lin. That's not a poison pill. That is just merely the weird way of the cap mechanic of the salary having to explode after a couple of years for a team that doesn't have full bird rights on a player. Don't be one of those sheep out there who aren't going to look at this with their eye open. Amin is here to tell you that's misinformation. That's not what we're talking about here. The real poison pill, the one that we're talking about, you might say, well, why does this rule exist? The rule exists because what the league didn't want was for players to basically be signed the deals with the explicit purpose of just making them fit under the cap, 
right? They didn't want something where it's like, oh yeah, we'll throw in RJ Barrett now while he's nice and cheap. And then next year, his salary goes up. So in order to prevent that from happening, they make this cute little mechanism where his salary as it counts outgoing is not the same as his salary as it counts incoming. And what I mean by that is, because we know the salaries have to add up. For the Knicks, the trade value on the way out, they use his current salary that he's making on his rookie scale, which I believe is like $10, $11 million. $10.9 million. Meanwhile, on the other end of the spectrum, for the incoming team, for the Utah Jazz, his salary doesn't come up as his current salary. Rather, it comes up as an average between his current salary and the new salary that he signed from the extension. So basically, on a one-to-one deal, it is virtually, not impossible, but it is highly improbable that you're going to put together a package on a one-to-one deal that's going to have enough washing of the money in either direction for it to fit under the very specific salary cap trade rules in the NBA. So if R.J. Barrett is going to be in a Donovan Mitchell deal, it'll most likely be in a multi-team deal, but I got to be honest with you guys, I kind of think this was the Knicks' aggressive chess move, saying, guess what? He's not on the table anymore. But this doesn't make sense to me from that standpoint. That hurts their chances of getting Donovan Mitchell. If you want Donovan Mitchell, and now a team like the Miami Heat says, oh, you just lost one of your main trade chips. RJ Barrett is off the table. Well, guess what? The asking price just came down. So maybe we can get into that race for Donovan Mitchell, swoop in here because RJ Barrett is off the table. And now we can get him when we didn't really have that because the Knicks could put in RJ Barrett into the deal. They could put in the picks. They could put in Grimes. They could put in Obi Toppin. And I think the other thing is, as Bobby Marks from ESPN outlined, they could throw Evan Fournier's $18 million into the deal. So it's outgoing $18 million additional salary, gets them within range of that poison pill restriction being obsolete, reroute Evan Fournier to another team like the Spurs or the Indiana Pacers. But in that case, the Spurs and the Pacers would be like, yo, give me a few first round picks. If the Knicks are going to do that, is it worth throwing in a couple first round picks to get rid of Evan Fournier, to get Donovan Mitchell? Maybe. But to me, this points to one thing. What does it point to? To me, the Utah Jazz didn't want R.J. Barrett. Yeah. And the Knicks were like, all right, well, if you don't want R.J. Barrett, I guess we'll sign it with 75% of the max. And the Utah Jazz are like, we want your picks. We don't want R.J. Barrett. Yeah. And that, to me, is what happened here. I've seen reports that the Utah Jazz really into R.J. Barrett and wanted him in a deal. But I don't know. It just doesn't really make much sense to get a volume shooter like that who's not the caliber of Donovan Mitchell on your books at $30 million. It didn't make sense to me. That's the way I see it is that if you acquire RJ Barrett, that means you got to make a decision very quickly. How much do you like RJ Barrett, right? And that complicates a situation where they're clearly trying to hit a reset button. From the very beginning, Danny Ainge has been very consistent on what he wants. He wants picks and he wants all of them. He wants six first round picks for the Knicks. Six. I believe the last thing that we heard were the Knicks were up to like five and three of them were protected and two unprotected. And R.J. Barrett. And R.J. Barrett. But the reality is Danny's looking for multiple swings at the pinata, right? The draft is a crapshoot. Let me get as many as possible. And also, I'm betting futures. I'm betting against your future, New York. I think you guys are going to f*** this thing up between now and the last pick you owe me because that's what your track record has suggested. Oh, what if the RJ Barrett deal makes those picks more valuable? 
for the Jazz. Yeah, now they want the picks even harder because they locked in R.J. Barrett along with Julius Randle and Jalen Brunson. Here's the stat for you. Ready? On basketballreference.com, you can go and look at which players added the most value to their team through their efficiency so that you could say, how many times did you shoot the ball? Were you efficient? And what is that extra value? How many points did you add to your team's bottom line above expectation? What's that? Is that on basketball reference? Yeah. There's adjusted shooting for each player. You could see true shooting TS added. Okay. And it's basically how many points you added above the efficiency norm. Got it. Based on your true shooting percentage. So RJ Barrett's an interesting player because he's what, 20, 21 years old highly touted going into Duke. Mm -hmm. He doesn't shoot well from three or the free throw line at Duke. And they say it's because he's playing in a very non-shooting environment where he's going into a thicket of trees. He doesn't have spacing around him. That's why he was inefficient. And in the NBA, he's still inefficient. A 51 true shooting percentage for last season, 47.9% true shooting in his rookie season. This is an inefficient guy at the free throw line. Downtown, he's average from three-point land. He's been very streaky, started out really hot last year, and then just hit a wall in the second half of the year. He's about an average three-point shooter, high-volume guy. Last season, there were only three players who took away points who were more hurtful on the offensive end with their shots than R.J. Barrett. The three names, Russell Westbrook. Yes. Reggie Jackson. Wow, okay. And Julius Randle. Oh, I knew he had to be there. I knew his ass had to be on that list. There's no way. There's no way it could have been anyone else. So RJ Barrett and his teammate are two of the most high-volume, inefficient shooters in the NBA, and they're on the same team. So maybe he's not taking shots away because the guy he's taking shots away from, he's not very good either. So what I'm hearing from you, if I'm to open my third eye, Russell Westbrook to the Knicks? (laughs) Tell me more. Yes, yes. Westbrook for Fournier and... (laughs) Someone else that'd be named later. Look, RJ Barrett, I didn't think he was deserving of the max. And if the Knicks got him at the max, I'd be like, oh, that's so perfect. That's so Knicksian. But then getting him on the books for 75% of that, about $30 million a year after this season, it's not a terrible deal. It's just kind of like a meh deal from their perspective. And if I'm Danny Ainge, I don't want that contract. So go ahead, sign him. That's fine. Give me all the picks. That's kind of the story of the Knicks cap sheet what's happening now right you have 27.7 million dollars to brunson this year 23.8 million dollars to randall 18 million dollars to fournier this year 14 and a half to derrick rose 17 to mitchell robinson hell they've got another 8 million to isaiah hartenstein so if you add donovan mitchell to this mix and assuming it's fournier and some other combination of players not named brunson randall or barrett you're gonna have your luxury tax sewn up on four players. It's tremendous. There's no way that I can describe this other than this is the most Nixie thing ever. And by the way, four players who don't fit at all. Think about that. Brunson, Randall, Barrett, and Donovan Mitchell. Think of their games. There's one basketball last time I checked. <laughs> and of those four names, none of them are great shooters. So that's four streaky volume shooting players who need the ball in their hands. I guess the question for me now is, okay, if the Knicks are pulling R.J. Barrett off the table, 
I mean, I guess it is going to come down to picks. Is they're going to just give them all the picks to the Utah Jazz? Here's the thing, Tom. At the end of the day, they still have the best package. We could talk about Miami. We could talk about the Lakers wanting to get in on a three or four team deal. All these other suitors, nobody can come close to what the Knicks can offer. And if you're the Knicks, there's reason to argue that you aren't so great with picks yourself. So why keep something, cling to something that holds very little value to you in exchange for getting the person that you want? Yeah, that's right. I mean, R.J. Barrett, the first first round draft pick to sign an extension for the Knicks since Charlie Ward. Since Charlie Ward was drafted in 1994. He signed that extension in 99. He was drafted in 94 before there was even a rookie scale, ladies and gentlemen. Think about that. Damn near 30 years. A whole millennium up to this point. <laughs> you know, the world ended. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happened. The Knicks computers just crashed in the year 2000. They weren't able to figure out the numbers until now. NYK? More like Y2K? YNK? Turn that in sideways. Oh. It looks kind of like it too. Is it too late to change the name of the episode? <laughs> now it's time for any secret message. For you members of the Secret Circle, remember kids, only members of any Secret Circle can decode any secret message. You can break the code. Maybe I take a shot at it, maybe I break it. I'm real happy with myself because I did my job well. There's only one hacker in the world who can break this code. Super string theory, chaos math, advanced algorithms. Code breaking. Strange, the code is somehow different. It's like solving a Rubik's Cube that's fighting back. Whoop-de-doo! What does it all mean, Basil? When people talk to each other, they never say what they mean. They say something else. And you're expected to just know what they mean. Break the code. You are. Quite simply, the best natural code breaker I've ever seen. I love how we can get such incredibly descriptive detail when it comes to things like, oh, what are the particulars of this transaction? Like, what happened here? Because straight from the belly of the beast, <laughs> our resident CAA insider, Adrian Wojnarowski, let us know all the ins and outs of everything here. He reports that they're finalizing an extension. Now, obviously, RJ is not a CAA client. He is BDA Sports. He's with Bill Duffy. Right. But we don't need to hear from the agent, Tom and Mays. We can go straight to the source itself, CAA Central. So, and I quote, Barrett's extension, which makes him the youngest $100 million player in Knicks history at 22. Wow. Thanks for that bit of information there, Adrian. Ends weeks of New York, Utah trade talks on Mitchell and forces teams to start discussions over with significantly different deal parameters because of the poison pill provision. PPP. <laughs> yeah, shout out to Marjorie Green Taylor. Pay that back. New York's Leon Rose set a Monday night deadline with Utah to reach an agreement on a trade for Mitchell or the Knicks would commit to the Barrett extension, sources said. That's my favorite part by far. Yeah. Anytime you give someone an ultimatum and they just completely ignore it, and then you're like, <laughs> well, I guess I got to do what I said. Knicks Jazz closed gap on deal points in recent days on a Mitchell trade, but neither would go further. Barrett's extension ends a remarkable 23-year drought for the Knicks. He's remarkable. It's a new era. He's given us facts about how special this is. He's given us the illusion that these two teams are at the table just inches apart. Most importantly, Leon Rose is painted as a man of principle. 
I set an ultimatum. Either you do shit or get off the pot. Guess what? Danny Ainge didn't take a shit, so I shoved him <laughs> off the pot. And I gave the pot a goal to RJ Brett. <laughs> It's like, all right, all right, whatever, man. This is like with my kids. I'm like, if you don't clean up your room, you're not getting ice cream tonight. And they're like, fine, I won't, I won't have ice cream tonight. But then imagine you going around and, and beating your chest to the neighborhood. I didn't give them ice cream. <laughs> you hear that? <laughs> not on my watch. I said it and by damn, nobody had ice cream in that house. I opened it up. I let it melt. I watched everybody watch. Ha <laughs> I'm happy now. And then my neighbor's like, yeah, but the room is just toys are everywhere. They didn't clean up the room. Ah, don't. Focus on the fact that R.J. Barrett and all the toys are just a total mess. Forget about that. Keep your eyes on the prize. No ice cream was handed out today. <laughs> you know what my favorite part's going to be, Tom? When inevitably in a few weeks you tell your kids, all right, maybe a little bit of ice cream. Mm. <laughs> a lot of fans hurt by the Chet Holmgren news, but no one is hurt more than Chet Holmgren himself. We're going to bring in the Grim Reaper. Yeah, I was going to say, there's only one person who's happy about the Chet Holmgren news. Oh, don't say that. Oh, don't put that on him. He's not happy that Chet Holmgren got hurt, but he kind of makes a living off of people like Chet Holmgren getting hurt, right? Oh, Oh, man. We're going to learn more about Liz Frank injuries than we care to know because no one is rooting for injuries, not even the guy who's about to come up. The most knowledgeable injury guru we have in the NBA streets, Jeff Stotts, coming up here in a sec. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. You all think I'm late. Well, I'm not late. And I'm going to stay right here and fight for this lost cause, even if this room gets filled with lies like these. And the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place. Somebody will listen to me. There's no better way to overpower a trickle of doubt than with a flood of naked truth. But the complexity in the grave lie not in the truth. But what you do with the truth once you have it. What is true and right is true and right for all. You and I both know that that's just not the truth. You can't handle the truth! It's too messy. Keeps them up nights. I'm here because in the end, the truth is worth the risk. Speak a little truth and people lose their minds. I'm a grown man. You can tell me the truth. Why is it people want the truth never believe it when they hear it? So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do something really outrageous. I'm going to tell the truth. Really excited to talk to Jeff Stotts here of InStreetClothes.com and also of the InStreetClothes podcast that he does with a friend of the program as well, Dr. Brian Sutterer. Jeff, what's up, man? Good to see you. Good to see y'all. You know, of course, if I come calling, that means someone's sitting out. So <laughs> I know the angel of death. <laughs> That's right. You're like the funeral home director. It's like, ah, uh, if I got to be called in, not good news. Never good to see me pop up on the screen for sure. You should see it when like, I have to call a parent or you know somebody else. Oh no! They see my number pop up on the phones, and it's oh no, here comes Jeff. I never get a hey, how are you? It's what's wrong. <laughs> so completely understand. This news happened a few days ago with 
Chet Holmgren, lots of competing theories about why this injury happened. Could it have been prevented? Should he have put on 40 pounds before he went out there so that he would be less predisposed to injury? Should he have shrunk six inches and then he wouldn't have gotten the injury? Should he have not defended LeBron and just made a business decision and said, hey, LeBron, go ahead, make that layup. I'm not going to defend that. But what is what is a Liz Frank Liz Frank injury? Liz Frank. I mean, we're gonna English Elizabeth Frank. Yeah, Elizabeth Franklin. Yeah, I know her. Lisa Frank. Y'all remember those like mm-hmm. nasty, super bright, old school like trapper keeper style folders with the unicorns and stuff like that. <laughs> That's what I always think of. So Liz Frank is the name of a surgeon, a French surgeon from the Napoleonic Wars, who was the first to kind of do a lot of work on this area of the foot. So it's in the midfoot. The foot's a bunch of little bones, and we have the long bones of the foot that transition to the toes. We have the tarsal bones. Wait, you got to say it in the tune. The long bones transition to the ligament bones. The ligament bones connected to the... <laughs> Wait a minute, a ligament bone? There's no such thing as a ligament bone. This is why we call Jeff, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> this is exactly why we call Jeff. Exactly, exactly right. So we've got this transition area in between the two areas of bone, not ligament, right, which are fortified by ligaments. So the second joint underneath your second toe sits the Liz Frank injury. And it was named after this surgeon who was the first to do a lot of work on there. Back then, late 18th century, I think early 19th century, he would just amputate it. Oh, sorry, Chad. What happened is a soldier got his foot stuck in the stirrups of his horse and it irritated the area. That area got gangrene. The doc just amputated it off. And so it's kind of just become synonymous with him. Fortunately for us, we don't do that anymore unless extreme cases are necessary. But in Chet's case, surgery was performed today on Tuesday. Dr. David Porter did that long list of NBA clients. And that area is the linchpin of the foot, which is why this is so problematic. You're talking about the area of the foot that transitions and supports the arch. We're diverting force when we push off, pushing that through our feet. It's a pretty unusual injury in the NBA. We see it a lot more in the NFL. That's for sure. So, Jeff, for those that don't know, Jeff has, by and large, the most comprehensive injury database anywhere around basketball. So the first thing I thought of when I heard this, I was like, well, I know Jeff's going to have like, (laughs) well, these are the list of guys that had Liz Frank and the average time missed and all that stuff. So give me the stats. Give me the numbers, man. Give me the data. You ready for this long list? Mm -hmm. I have... Two. What? Two guys in my database. (laughs) That's it. With true, what we call Liz Frank injuries. So a lot of times we have midfoot injuries. We kind of get this nondescript midfoot description. They'll say midfoot sprain. Mm. You'll recall last season, Anthony Davis missed some time with a midfoot injury. Mm -hmm. Now that doesn't necessarily mean it was Liz Frank. There's tons of ligaments like Tom's song suggested in the middle of the foot. (laughs) That's right. But they can all get sprained. And so the only ones we know that were for sure Liz Frank were... Marcin Gortat, he missed the last 21 games of the 2012-2013 season with a Liz Frank sprain. And then Udonis Haslam from the Heat. And he did that during the first season of the Big Three, that 2010-2011. I think Tom actually put something out on that. Shouts to the Heat Index. Unfortunately for both of these guys, using them as comparison is difficult because they're both what I call outliers when I'm looking at injuries. So Gortat's injury was a season ender, so we don't know when he came back. We don't have a true return to play date for him because he came back and was ready for the next season, but we have no idea really when he was cleared. Right. Haslam is actually an outlier because during his recovery, he developed a pulmonary embolism and then spent some time in recovery for that because he developed that clot following surgery. So because of that secondary injury, we take him out of the normal look in terms of return to play because he did have something else that could potentially complicate his return to play and his delay. He did miss 
69 games, 170 days, I think it was, eight playoff games, and was able to come back, but again, a lengthy recovery. So, you know, with Chet, they know it's going to be a long recovery. If we look to the NFL, the average time loss is 11 months in one study found. So we know this is going to be a lengthy recovery. By saying he's out for the season at this point, they're going to just let him focus on getting healthy and recovering. There's not that pressure. When's he going to come back? Is he going to come back? Can he come back? And really, they can just focus on recovery. A little tidbit about that Udonis Haslam injury. You pointed out on Twitter that, hey, keep in mind, he was out for six months, but with that pulmonary embolism, it kind of changes things. You know what's crazy about that is covering that team. We had Brian Winhurst, Michael Wallace, Ira Winderman, Izzy Gutierrez, Ethan Skolnick. Tom Haberstrow. <laughs> I wouldn't throw my name in those list of great journalists who know everything there is to know about the organization inside and out. And yet none of us knew that Udonis Hasm was in the hospital on Christmas night watching the Christmas Day games with a pulmonary embolism. No one knew about the blood clot. And that's the Miami Heat. They don't let things get out if they don't want them to. So when Chris Bosh, unfortunately, had his career shortened by the blood clots in, I think, 2015, that's when we found out about the Udonis Haslam thing. Yeah. It took years for that information to get out. And it wasn't until one of the teammates suffered the same unfortunate condition that we found out that Udonis Haslam, in his words, he felt like his wife had saved his life by saying, you need to go to the hospital. You're not breathing. You can't breathe. You need to go in. So I wanted to ask you, like, is that a concern or a caution for what Chet is going to go through. You have to be stationary. You probably don't travel, put a lot of weight bearing on your foot. Is it anything to do with Liz Frank injuries that he developed the blood clot? Or is it just any, any weight bearing foot injury, you have a higher risk for something like that to develop? So a lot of times we're worried about lower extremity issues. I think that's actually what Bosch's first injury was, was a calf strain mm -hmm. that develops into that clot. And then you factor in that these guys are flying at different air pressures and different elevations and things like that. It's why Following surgery, especially for low extremity, you see a lot of guys go home in the, the compression garments, the, the socks that go sometimes all the way up to the mid-thigh, cover the calf, just depends on the area. Because what we're doing with that is we're fighting gravity, right? Blood flow, our venous blood flow has to get back to the heart. And so our muscles do help pump that blood a little bit. And for bigger guys, it's got a further way to go. So we've got you know to do, do even more. And so when you're immobile and you're not doing anything, that blood can struggle a little bit. It can be prone to clots, especially with lower extremity injuries or surgeries. So it's going to be something that has to be factored in. It will be, it's basically kind of standard in a lot of lower extremity surgeries, it, or if you're going to be sidelined and in the bed, they might even put those compression like sleeves where your feet go in there and it literally massages your calves to help mm. circulate the blood flow. So it's definitely something that we, we consider secondary to the injury, but something that has to be t taken into consideration for sure. You said it's a lot more common in the NFL. Do you have any theories why? Is it the way players move? Why is this injury so rare in basketball when when I watch, I see guys make those kind of motions many, many a time? Is it the cleats? I've got a couple working theories, and I've talked with a couple other guys that, that see this, and including some people in the NFL that did not realize how uncommon it was in the NBA when we were having these conversations. The first thing for me is, you don't have as many people fall on your foot. A lot of times we see it like someone's foot is planted and someone falls on top of their foot. It doesn't happen quite as much in the NBA. We have people coming down on other people's feet in terms of like twisting the ankle, but we don't have a lot of people like falling on top of feet. And then 
The playing surface and the cleats are the other one that I think cleats are a little bit more rigid. They definitely stick to the turf a little bit harder. Turf doesn't have as much give as, as an NBA Florida. So you guys have all walked on the NBA court. You know, it's it's got some bounce to it. Mm-hmm. And so I think those things contribute to the fact that this is just not something we see all that much and why the other sport tends to be more prone to this type of injury. You mentioned that the three guys in your database were all big men. Do you think there's any connection between size and this injury in the NBA? You know, inherently, we always, I always get that question. And I think the answer is yes, right? Bottom line is you're talking about your roots of the tree, right? We're talking about where everything starts. It's at the ground and we work our way up. The bigger we are, the more weight we're going to carry, the more stress is going to be applied to our foot, whatever the shape of the foot is. Some of these guys have big feet. Some of them have narrow feet. Others have a high arch versus a low arch. You know, almost everybody nowadays wears inserts in their shoes. There's things we can do to kind of divert that. But I do think size is an issue here. Does that necessarily mean it was... 100% 100% what caused Holmgren's injury. I don't think that's necessarily the case, but I think it would be unwise to say they didn't at least play a contributing factor. I mean, when you were with the Suns, was there any talk about programs and off-season games and any sort of injury risk and how we prevent you know a player getting injured in one of these things off the clock, so to speak? The big thing for us, because we had so many international players, was national team play. Guys going to play for the national teams and playing in conditions that were not NBA caliber conditions and for coaches that were, you know, when you're playing for country, they don't have like, there's no load management or any kind of consideration to that point. What we did is we'd send a trainer. One of our training staff guys would go with the players over there. And I believe in the case of Cowboy, Mike Elliott, he actually worked, I want to say on the French national team as their trainer. But at the end of the day, you can't stop them. Funny, so many people say, oh, you're going to see these pro-ams getting banned. I'm like, you can't stop them. Contractually, they're allowed to do it as long as it's a sanctioned event. And it's not like playing pickup like Jimmy Butler in Ecuador, like on an outdoor court where people clearly don't play basketball. But for the most part, all these things, the crossover, the Drew League, the Miami Pro-Am, these are all sanctioned events. So you can't stop them. You can't say no. Same as you can't say no to a guy going to play in Eurobasket or, or in the World Cup. What do you think about that, Jeff? Is the idea that teams are going to start tightening the leash, so to speak, about when you have these players, especially a guy like Chet Holmgren, who's a top pick, are they going to wink, wink, nudge, nudge, not necessarily tell them, hey, you can't play there, but do you think that there's any sound reason to keep them from playing in a bunch of these programs, maybe a limited number of these programs. How do you think this is going to change the way that trainers look at this? I think sanctioned is the key word there, right? Like how much control do you have over the environment? Because, you know, you look at, is there a crowd under the baseline? What's the conditions of the floor? The thing that's getting overlooked by chess injuries, they called the game due to condensation on the floor. Like they took the necessary steps to say, this is unsafe playing surface. Let's get our guys off this court. We don't want something happening. Let's take them off. And I think that's really needs to be with the focus. Guys are going to get reps over the summer. Injuries are going to happen. I have numerous off-season injuries in my database that are not linked to national team. They're not linked to pro-ams that are just off-season injuries that occur. You know, we get hamstring strains. We get all these kinds of different things that pop up. Anytime you play, you're exposing yourself to a level of risk. And so it's, can we mitigate that risk a little bit? Can we control things? Can we do like Amin said, send some people to help out to ensure we're reducing that risk? And if there is an area where we're maybe concerned, can we then put our foot down? I think it's almost a choose your battle kind of issue for a lot of cases. And and I think that's going to be fluid at this point moving forward. Jeff, I want to cut right to the fat. Let's get to the real point that everyone, myself included, the biggest Concern about Chet Holmgren going into the draft was that physically 
he's not of the body type that is capable of withstanding the rigors of professional basketball, right? And I'm not talking about like, oh, he's skinny. He just needs to gain weight. I'm saying, I'm looking at his frame, the combination of his extreme height and the narrowness of his base. I don't know if he'll ever be, you know, you put him in there with creatine and, and weight gainer and all that stuff and <laughs> yeah. for months and months in a weight room. I don't think he'll ever be physically kind of where he needs to be. Is there anything to indicate that this injury is at least tangentially connected to a physical issue? We call that the Jeff Stotts effect, not being able to put on weight and remain <laughs> just, just super skinny, right? <laughs> Brian and I had a conversation about this on our podcast. And Brian's big thing was he thought this was an on-contact injury. He thinks it's kind of linked to when Chet goes up to contest LeBron, has to adjust, and then push off that foot. Mm-hmm. Is that linked to his ability or inability to potentially absorb that contact from LeBron. You know, I think I've, I've said from day one with Chet, it's a unique case. I'm kind of sick of the unicorn moniker, right? Well, there's only one unicorn, so <laughs> it really has been beaten to death. I'm with you, Jeff. It really has, but he is a good, for medical terms, a good case study, right? We've never had a guy quite his size and physique. You know, Yao Ming was skinny, but Yao Ming was an oak. <sighs> Yeah. I remember being blown away just seeing like I was up close and his legs were just massive. It's like two different bodies from the waist up is one body. And then from the waist down, it was like a completely different person. Centaur. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Hubba hubba. Man, we're just throwing all kinds of mythology creatures out here. Maybe that should be the one that catches on. <laughs> so for me, it's how do we find that balance, right? He is who he is. The way he moves makes him valuable and brings a skill set that we haven't seen but how do we find that balance that he can't absorb the contact? And that's one reason why I think we've talked about this in prior pods. Some of the new demands of the sport are where my concerns are with why we're seeing this uptake in injury, mm-hmm. because we're asking our big men to extend all the way out to the three point line. We're right. asking our big men to run up and down, you know, and it's not that they're not physically able to do that. It's just constant doing it. You're more likely to suffer a lateral injury if you're reaching way, way out, you know, and those kinds of things. Is there a body type that, would be less conducive. I guess what I'm saying is beyond him being skinny, high center of gravity. Like if he had a lower center of gravity, could that change anything? Yes, because it's physics, right? We're talking about mass and force and changing that center of gravity is going to adjust those equations, right? We're talking about the force we generate, the stress we apply, those kinds of things. So you're looking at various movement patterns and, and those cases and how do they work with that individual? Because so often we try to kind of take things with like a cookbook approach where it applies to everything. And that's just not the case because we're talking about a sport where you can have Chet Holmgren, you can have Zion Williamson, both top picks, extremely different body types, extremely different value, but they're playing the same game. I feel confused sometimes where with Zion Williamson, he has too much weight on his feet. And then with Chet Holmgren, it's like, he doesn't have enough. We'd rather him have oaks for legs, which would be heavier on those feet. We're Goldilocks in this thing, Tom. (laughs) We want to get it just right. We need the medium amount of weight on somebody's feet. (laughs) Because now it's not just about Chet. It's about this next unicorn, another unicorn, multiple (sighs) unicorns coming down the pipeline that with this injury, now it's like, oh. Victor Wembanyama. Victor Wembanyama, also a similar body type, maybe a wider frame than Chet Holmgren. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the similar questions is OKC has a history with this where Kevin Pelton at ESPN, the machine, did an article looking at comparisons of BMI, body mass index, where it's essentially like 
have we ever seen a player like Chet Holmgren in the NBA? This this height and weight, and of course he missed the combine or he didn't get measured at the combine. We can say seven feet, one ninety five, and using those numbers, there's only two other active players in the NBA who have a lower BMI than Chet Holmgren, and they both play for the OKC Thunder. <laughs> They're both his teammates. They have a type, <laughs> and then. Victor Wembanyama could be the number one pick next year. And because of this Chet Holmgren injury, I think they're going to be a worse team next year. They could be in the running for Victor Wembanyama. So they could have two players who are seven plus feet tall and also very, very skinny. So what do we know about Victor Wembanyama's injury history? Have you taken a look at it? And whether we should be concerned that this new breed, so to speak, of unicorns are actually high injury risks. So a couple of things. I haven't done a deep dive on him yet. I usually wait till the next season gets going before I start looking to the draft prospects. I got to have a little bit of downtime, so I'm, I'm cataloging <laughs> all this stuff. But the big thing is I have looked at height, and we do know that taller players genuinely have a proclivity to injury. They tend to get injured more, whether that's people falling into their legs, foot or ankle injuries, those kinds of things. The bigger you are, there tends to be a little bit more likelihood of injury. Now, the other thing I'd like to add to that is the injury concern is still growing. We've talked about this, you know, last year was a record number of injuries, games lost to injuries and illness. Part of that was COVID. Part of that was the different schedules and things like that. But it's back to what I was saying in terms of the demand of the game. Now, again, I'm not going to sit here and say it's one factor. It's a multifaceted approach. And all this younger generation is being raised on basketball differently, you know, in terms of AAU and then college and then pros, what do those steps look like? Those steps all look drastically different. Specialization is occurring, which can influence loading patterns and inherent injury risk as they're entering into college or the league. And so I think there's not just one bullet point that we can say, hey, if we fix this, it's going to help reduce everything. I think it's got to be a multifaceted approach at the ground level and then work our way up. And it's hard to do because we're talking about everyone coming from a variety of different locations. We're talking about international players. We're playing with men in grown leagues over there while we've got our guys over here playing in AAU or one year of college, four years of college, those kinds of things. It's just everyone's on a different playing field in terms of approach. Plus we talked about the variability in size of the player and it's unique and it's difficult to just point down and say, this is one thing, but if we can identify some of those and again, start to mitigate some of that risk, maybe we're going to do a better job of reducing these injuries. Are you surprised by them ruling them out for the season already? No, simply because again, you're looking at the NFL 11 month recovery. I don't have any NBA numbers really to cover that. Cause again, we, our two cases are unique, mm-hmm. but I think this takes the pressure off Chet. I think it's a smart approach from a standpoint of don't rush things. Don't try to get back out there. I know he's going to want to play pretty quickly. He seems to be a pretty competitive guy. He cares a lot about playing. That's why he was at the pro in the first place. Right. But they've kind of removed that from the equation and simply said, look, we're going to call it a year and we don't have to do what we did with Zion all last year where it's, Hey, what's the status? Hey, how are we doing? What's it look like? Is there any progression? Hopefully we'll get some progression throughout the year on how he's doing and we'll get this approved film. We're like, he's in the gym doing this, or he's in the gym doing that. You know, we'll, we'll get all that. The other thing to point out is Oklahoma City's medical staff is top-notch. They continually rank as one of the best. So I'm not surprised to see them take a smart, conservative approach with this just to get him better and acclimated to the life of the NBA. They can figure out the weight thing. They can bring that along slowly. And it buys them time to develop a better game plan. Jeff, you've mentioned how the list Frank is a football injury. And it's quite a week for the list Frank because we just found out that Najee Harris has been dealing with one all preseason. And you just said, don't rush back. Don't force it. So I got to ask Najee Harris heading into the season. Important Illuminati discussion here. Yep. Super important football Illuminati discussion. 
Is he in danger of re-injury? How do you feel about his prospects this year? Kind of multifaceted here. So number one, he does have a history of foot sprains. He missed some time back in Alabama with a foot foot sprain to the same area. And he did have a low grade sprain. So generally looking in the NFL, that's about four to six week window, which means there's not any instability in that foot. The ligament was was injured, but the foot itself has held up well. There's no diversion of the foot when you're looking at like weight bearing and things like that. He's already back. He played in the preseason action, which is a good sign that they feel confident that the foot is doing well. I'm a little bit worried about the offensive line mixed with his injury history. You know, those things tend to be problematic. I would not be shocked, especially early on, maybe ease his workload, especially after last year. If you're asking for fantasy purposes, I've definitely downgraded him a little bit in a lot of the fantasy drafts where I've seen him taken. I still think there's plenty of upside, but there's definitely, you got to bake in a, a level of, of risk when you're taking him. There you go. Football Illuminati coming soon. Keep your third eye open for that one. He's putting the foot down on Najee's draft stock. I'm putting my foot down. We're getting out of here. Don't hurt your list, Frank. Thanks so much, Jeff. Appreciate it, guys. Honestly, thought this was photoshopped. I mean, I thought it was. I thought you were getting ball sacked. I really thought you were getting ball sacked. So I saw this morning the Sports Illustrated cover. Chris Ballard, one of the best journalists we have in this biz, he spent a long time with the James family to talk about Bronny. Where is Bronny going? Something we've been covering quite a bit on this here show. And then what about Bryce? Throwing it in there too. Bryce and Bronny. LeBron might want to play with Bronny and Bryce. Both of them on the same team. Bryce, oh my God, 2027. What about that? That would have been a cool story. And it is a cool story. But the photo, (laughs) LeBron is wearing a black sleeveless t-shirt with his chosen one Sports Illustrated cover printed on the chest. From 20 years ago, and he's got both of his sons at his side. All I could think <laughs> of was the sounder from the Levitard show. Look at me, Ballard yeah. would say, do you keep up with the draft picks? Like, what, what team? He's like, absolutely. Keep up with all the teams. What draft picks they have, 24, 25, 26, 27. And Ballard's like, 27? You talking about Bryce? And LeBron nods, and I said, look at me, Louis. <laughs> and he's like, oh, there's no pressure. Like, we don't care what anyone says. But also, I want both of my sons to play in the NBA, and I want to play with them. Look at me, Louis. <laughs> That's my favorite part. Chris, he opens the story about, like, as a father of, of teenagers, I'm really curious about how, you know, LeBron and Savannah are, are parenting their kids through these teenage years and how, you know, these brains, they don't really know what they're doing and how are they going to do that? Well, Savannah and LeBron are both like, we don't want to force them into anything. We ask them, hey... What do you want to be when you grow up? And if they want to be basketball players, that's great. But we're not forcing them to do that. The headline is LeBron James. I want to play with Bronny and Bryce. But no, I don't want to force them to do anything. Did he get aggregated in his own article? Look at me, Louie. You know what, Tom? 
Can he just become an owner and draft his own sons already? I'm tired of him putting all this pressure on other people to pick his kids and make it happen like it's Shabazz Napier all over again. Can't he just make these decisions himself and bury his own team with these expectations? I don't know. I kind of thought of that. Maybe that'll be another episode down the line is with all this pro-am and LeBron James and the crossover, is this just the seed of something down the line? Did you guys catch, though, the little detail about Bryce got an offer? Yes, he did. From Duquesne. Yeah. Why Duquesne? Because it's coached by LeBron's former high school coach from St. Vincent, St. Mary. Come on. Yes. All in the family. Come on, sheeple. Come on, man. This is one thing we didn't hit on that episode. LeBron James is going to cultivate and control that narrative. When these offers come through, the teams, the college programs can't say it. The NIL. They said Bronny's estimated at around $6 million a year in NIL money. He's the most coveted player. I mean, he's the most famous by far, right? And he still hasn't gotten an offer, apparently. Look, LeBron James and their family are going to control the narrative. They will let you know who's going to get that offer. And they let the Bryce offer come out. And it just coincidentally was LeBron's old coach mm-hmm. taking care of him. Mm-hmm. 